0: Welcome to Mind Reading's Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice it's animated by the question of whether doctors and patients speak the same language and how we can use narrative to bridge the evident gaps. Mindreading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life Project and the University of Birmingham, and has since expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland, including UCD School of English Drama and Film. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice, especially in the field of mental health. So this series brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we had to postpone, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. Today's episode is entitled Written on the Body, Eating Disorders and Narrative. My name is Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady of the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. I'm joined for this episode by Harriet Parsons, Training and Development Manager at BodyWise, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, Consultant and Liaison in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Children's University Hospital Temple Street at UCD, Emily a writer, researcher, and blogger, and recovery coach with particular interest in eating disorders, and Aoife Murray, who's the program and events manager at Children's Books Ireland. So, as the last, as the final part of the the episode, I'm going to open up to all the panelists. We're going to have a, a brief kind of Q and A, just bringing together some of the ideas that have emerged, and what I think is really interesting from today's um, presentations is the the range of ways in which narrative can be important right so in in treatment or in 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 learning about the patient experience of ed and, and how that's kind of unexpectedly perhaps um how that can kind of have unexpected consequences as both both harriet and, and emily pointed out and also the use of these kinds of narratives of case histories of individual patient voice narratives of composite narratives of reflection in clinical practice in education and in reflection so really Wildly different, um wild, wildly different approaches and uses, and then also the kind of more general um relationality of reading that we see with with, with your projects um in CBI, Aoife. So just a, a huge sense of the range of kinds of narrative that come into play here, which is which is I think really fascinating. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on that really arose, I think, in all of the presentations was the balance between. Directing and guiding readership, and the, the kind of the interpretation guides, both for both for clinicians and and um, support providers, Harriet and, and Liz, and for for um, for patients or, or people who've who've recovered from or who are re- recovering from eating disorders, Emily. And you mentioned the same thing, Efa. Um, how do you how do you how do you manage that balance between allowing readers to find their way through a text? And also directing their directing their attention to what's important. How do we decide what's important, and who gets to make that decision? So, I think a question of power
1: um, in some in some respects. Um, Emily, I might start with you. What you say about power is an interesting way to go, I think. And if you, if you're if you're designing experiments to uh, to try to push people's uh, interpretive activity in one way or another, then you know, as an experimenter, you have a clear remit to to do what you've decided to do in order to draw causal inferences. And, you know, the reading guide, it seems, is one potentially quite effective way of demonstrably Mm -hmm. nudging people's interpretive responses in one direction rather than the other. Um, But, yeah, what do you do when you're out in in the real world not being uh, held by the hand by an experimenter? I think for me... It probably comes down to and this this applies right across the the broad sweep of of genres that um, involve text, everything from you know stuff that you read on Facebook to yeah. Dickens novels and everything in between It's probably something about just learning to read critically. Some of the principles in, involved in academic literary study, for example narrative perspective seem likely to be relevant here you know what kind of perspective is. Uh, a story being narrated from or focalized through, how can identifying that perspective give you a way of not necessarily taking at face value everything that that uh, narratorial figure is, is conveying, not necessarily, you know. Uh, assuming that their value judgments about things are valid Um, another one might be use of metaphorical language I mean the 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 webs of uh, metaphorical association that get built up around all aspects of eating disordered experience are really a really powerful ways of both sustaining the disorder and then breaking into it as behaviors start to change and you know drawing people's attention to what metaphor is doing and um, what it can do if you flip it on its head or you know demolish it in some way i think those those type of uh tools that you might equip people with again perhaps in. Uh... In the context of the amazing work that that you feel your charity is doing, giving people this type of tool really early on, so they can start to, you know, as with deconstructing photoshopped images of models or whatever, allowing them to to sort of understand better the the ways in which these texts are constructed and how to navigate your way through them rather than just being sucked through them in whatever way happens to to come about. I think that's maybe a, a useful avenue to think along.
0: Yeah, that's that's really useful and actually sort of broadens out into into one of the questions that I wanted to talk about in terms of using narrative and, and the question that Liz raised very early on, the very practical question of of what are the things that we can use, what are the things that can be applied in the context of of medical and clinical education. I think you've given a really useful answer there um, around perspective and and as you say, just sort of literacy, um, media literacy and information literacy, which is something that we're kind of increasingly talking. Talking about, as you say, with with imagery and with news, but we don't always remember to bring that back, actually, to either to fiction or cultural representation or to individual narratives, sort of self self narrative of, the, of the kind that that, that Liz and Harriet have, have particularly been talking about. And Aoife, I, I'm I'm really interested in the in the, the the shadowing the shadowing program that you talk about, and I'm I'm curious as to how you would see that rather than sort of telling children what to read, which you, you've been very clear is not what you're interested in. So how do you guide that reading? How do you how do you foster those kind of independent reading dispositions through through your work? And picking up on, on what Emily has said there,
2: we I suppose was specifically around the book of the year awards. We, we are saying these are the eight or 10 books that this particular panel thought were mm-hmm. excellent. And this is who this panel are. They all happen to be adults, except for one young reader, a young person um, on another year, this panel might have chosen a different list. This isn't to be all an end all. Um, so we we go out to the schools. We tell them this: these are the shortlisted titles. And then we say to them, have a read of them. Read of them if you want to. You don't have to read all of them. And we also, and um, we talk about guided reading. We also provide um, a junior jury pack, which is a resource pack that the te- a teacher or uh, whoever's guiding the reading, whoever the adult is, the gatekeeper can use with the class to um, draw out the different elements different themes of the book addresses we try again for that not to be too didactic I mean it is written by a person (laughs) that person has put together these resources and come from a particular point of view and we try to bear that in mind and but again it is about it really is about trying to foster that idea of critical reading in in a young person like it's actually surprising how how little their opinions are gathered and how often they're told this is a book you must read you must like all books like when the book doctor meets a child and says you didn't like that book you didn't like black beauty that's great like did you, did you read much of it and the child says yeah i read the whole thing because i thought i should no next time maybe read 10 pages if you don't like it put it aside that it by itself is a really um empowering and almost shocking thing for a child to learn um so again we try to bear that in mind that we are providing and showcasing excellence without being especially prescriptive or didactic in it yeah
0: and that that really allows children to develop those critical faculties themselves and to maybe kind of to emerge to to emerge as readers who are able to to say well what's going on in this text why is it affecting me in this way what do i see in it that's useful what's not useful to me what's potentially harmful um, which I think is is really useful, and of course, one of the things that we've been talking about today is, while as, as Harriet was pointing out, um, eating disorders affect um, affect populations across the board. Um, one of one of the areas that it's that it's that it's really important to talk about is children and adolescents with eating disorders, and, and Liz's work speaks to that. And so, how when we're talking about narrative, if we're talking about narrative, either either personal or fictional or composite, how do you how does a, an adolescent population or, or a, a, a pediatric population change the dynamic of narratives? What do you what are the things that we have to consider? And I, I'd really just ask Liz and Harriet there to to come in.
3: I was just thinking about the you know and we made a very good point that literature is not an, an alternative to evidence-based based treatment, obviously. but I think as a point of therapeutic engagement, it can be very helpful. And I was thinking about narrative in the broader sense. So, for example, uh, i was thinking Harriet and I sat on the um, national um, group that cr- was involved in creating the, the National Model for Eating Disorders. But I had met Harriet long before that. She'd come to do a trainee presentation for me in about, oh, I don't know, late, maybe 2009 or 2010. I had, you know, been on to Bodywise saying, you know, trainees, are are really struggling to understand eating disorders. I wonder, would somebody come and give us the talk? And Nari came and basically told us stories from the frontiers of young people with eating disorders. And it was so powerful. And I remember one psychiatry trainee, she was actually an, an, an adult psychiatrist, who said to me afterwards, uh, this was back, you know, before coronavirus a week ago as trainees for a drink at the end of the conference day, you know. And she said to me, it had totally changed her perspective you know that one lecture I still remember it It was so powerful the idea that narrative at the you know the right person the right at the right time can be so powerful and I was so glad when I came back to Ireland and was involved in that model of care to see patient groups and patient representation and experts by experience bringing their voice to the table it was very powerful and very for me anyway as a clinician it felt very inclusive that it wasn't just clinicians you know in the echo chamber sharing stories that there were uh, you know experts in the room who were advocating for patients and that that was integral to the program from very early on. So to me those two bits are important you know the medical education piece and the advocacy piece and using narrative in them. Part of it for me as well I think we can't ask experts by experience to talk to every student doctor and every student SLT and every student social worker and every student psychologist like firstly it would be I think unbearably difficult to retell stories over and over to, um, to different groups of clinicians uh, some of whom are really interested and some of whom are required to be there for their university credits, right? I mean, talk about disheartening if, if you, you know, were there as the, as the expert by experience. So I think we have to be creative. We have to think about ways that we can integrate patient voice into, you know, clinical education of all kinds, because I think sometimes we, I don't know if Harriet will agree with me, sometimes we ask patient advocates to do it They're fantastic. Like Harriet certainly blew the minds of 40 or 50 trainee psychiatrists, which was brilliant and I'm sure had long-term impacts, but it's impossible for Harriet to do that for every group. So I don't know, Harriet, do you feel we rely on you guys too much? Do you feel we have to find better ways of doing this?
4: I've never had that sense, Liz. But what I would say is that what I have found, you know, since the model of care has been put in place is that a huge part of the work of supporting people has been through the parents and supporting Absolutely. the families. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, our family support program, the pillar program, I'm just, as you, you, know, as you were talking, I was thinking that is so true to pin information with a story because every evening, um, that we do for every point that I make, I have a story oh. to illustrate it, a real story. You know, something that somebody has said to me, an experience that I've had with working with somebody or, you know, what we've heard from people, you know, on the support groups, or you know, their experiences. And by putting it into a story, you know, I have like the toast example or the race cancellation example or the, you know, falling into a a river example, all of these different metaphors, really. Um, you give the family a way of understanding. Um, and just an example of that, I guess, this morning, I was we've started this um, post-pillar kind of regular support group. And there was a mum who had been faced with a situation with her daughter, where her daughter had come to her to tell her something that was really upsetting that she hadn't had her lunch, um, you know, for, for a period of time. And you know, the mum had the wherewithal in that moment to react in a way that was helpful. And that was, you know, part of being able to do that is having perspective on it. Mm -hmm. So being able to have stood back at some stage to try to understand what is going on here in my situation. And I think that narrative and story can really help a person to do that. Yeah, in terms of like referring people to stories, you know, people themselves who have an eating disorder, I'm always really cautious about doing it and kind of leave it up because I never know what's going to be triggering for somebody, you know, what's some how somebody might interpret something or read something. But certainly for family, there's definitely, you know, lots of scope for helping families to understand better, to know what to do more by them reading. yeah I
3: totally agree with you and I actually think for me it's more sometimes young people will bring something that they've read or told you about because so I think that good example earlier you know when we're talking about turtles all the way down now we mightn't be doing it we mightn't be talking about it from a narrative perspective but what we're talking about is the character in it who has anxiety and what bits of her difficulties are similar to some of the bits I have and that's, but you know what, that, there, that is something, as as Aoife said, about every child a reader. If children come to you and they're interested in reading and they found things that make sense to them or have have caused them to ask questions, I think, and it, and also assuming the clinician is a reader and knows a little bit about the story, you know, it, that it, so it's a very, you know, tricky and limited and bi-directional thing. And not everyone is going to be be interested in that. But hey, when it happens, it can be really, really powerful, I think.
0: I think that's a really important point. And the, the, the term that strikes me is maybe resonance rather than relatability. I mean, what, but what, yeah. yeah. I mean, Liz, I was really struck when you mentioned the, the, t- the specific texts that you that that have been influential or important for you. None of them are narratives of eating disorders. They're all they 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 have those those resonances, those emotional kind of touchstones. Um, just exactly as I was was saying, you know, perhaps if isolation is a feature, maybe that's a way of maybe there's a text that deals well with isolation or with with alienation that is a way of articulating an element of of, of, of an individual patient experience. And so to think about narrative as resonant, as scaffolding rather than as kind of training, um, I think might be might be useful. And Emily, that seems to me to chime a little bit as well with your research in terms of what is what is useful is not reflective, but is resonant. Um, so maybe that's a distinction that we could that we could kind of think about. Um, and uh, Harriet, I'm, I'm struck, of course, the, the, the idea of the family as, as always sort of a bridge between the clinical and the community context. So I know you you, you and Liz both mentioned how much treatment takes place in the community. Um, and that brings me to an, another much sort of broader question. To what extent do we need to think about the kind of imagery literacy that we've been talking about as a cultural phenomenon i mean you know we we talked about the literacy around you know not assuming that that the images that we see aren't um aren't doctored and that is particularly true of bodies i think um you know representations of of eating disorders in various um in in various kind of cultural contexts what is important about that is, again, do we need to be tr- teaching those critical reading skills that Emily was talking about just across the board? I would be delighted if that were the answer. Let's just teach everybody literary theory. Um, but I wonder how, how much do we need to think about the, the community perception, the public perception and understanding of, of eating disorders and of the body as a
1: sort of a public object? Might be interesting here to bring in a bit more about my experience of working with Beat because that ended up touching in some quite interesting ways on on issues related to your question. It ended up being actually quite problematic because um, they decided that my blog contravened their media guidelines for representing eating disorders because it included some images of like before and after uh, recovery and also some body weight numbers, which I subsequently removed. But that that wasn't considered adequate to, to bring it into line with their guidelines. I found this really kind of disheartening because, one, as far as I could tell, their guidelines were put together on the basis of a pretty sketchy research uh, involving a small number of people and, I mean, almost all the research that I've been aware of them doing, and I think this is a problem in the charitable sector in general, uh, is, is highly biased. They're pushing people to basically report stuff that makes their cause seem more important, and that often just means getting people to uh, emphasise the negatives and you know the reasons why more money needs to be poured into this. Um, so that, that one of the issues was with the evidence base for for the guidelines that they'd drawn up. Um, but the second the sort of more interesting question really was about the potential for doing good versus uh, incurring risk. And uh, I guess it makes sense that as a charitable organisation, your primary target even more important than doing good would be to avoid doing harm. And as a blogger, you know, that may or may not be the the hierarchy of of intentions. Certainly I'd had uh, anecdotal evidence that, you know, showing miserable, crappy, skeletal looking me versus me looking well, you know, had had been helpful for them. I'm sure for some other people it wasn't. Um, But do you have to bring everything back to that lowest common denominator of avoiding the tiniest potential to do harm at all costs? So yeah, some really interesting things arose there and and I guess in, in general there's a question about the sort of charitable agenda versus the research agenda and what we were what we were trying to do in in our collaboration. But this comes back to that question about who, who gets to choose what goes out into the world and what are the the reasons behind the choices. I guess in in thinking about you know the memoir case and because I've been sort of ended up kind of accidentally writing one, even though I thought a memoir was the last thing I wanted to write. I think people's reasons for writing such books are often not really very well interrogated by themselves and often in particular a kind of general awareness raising instinct or ambition may be getting conflated with a doing therapeutic good ambition and I think actually those two uh, readerships may have almost orthogonal requirements when it comes to you know what kind of information you give them about eating disorders. If you generally know Know nothing about them then it may be helpful to get all kinds of detail if you know a lot because you've got one uh what you need is probably something entirely different and that's where you're guessing the points about resonance versus specific kind of factual relatability may come in but yeah some really difficult questions there that i, I don't have answers to but um <laughs> capturing
0: um harriet i'd like to i'd like to ask you about that as well because it's obviously something that you that you've you've got you've got experience with and, and, and interest in and in terms of sort of public understanding as 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 emily says which may have completely different needs than than individual patient understanding as, as Emily said maybe oppositional needs could you talk a little bit about how you see sort of cultural representations of, of eating disorders
4: a couple of things come to mind maybe not specifically about cultural representations other than you you know there's a lot of awareness raising that needs to be done around that eating disorders don't discriminate between genders between and um, backgrounds between socioeconomic conditions you know that anybody can develop an eating disorder one thing that came to mind while you were talking, Claire, was the idea that um, I often see a, a a a development of 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 understanding and thought in in families. So often at the beginning, when they come, and so say on our family support program, and we do week one and. You know, I deliver week one, and there's a couple of videos on the website, or there's a book, or something like that. And they um, or they want to take it and make their person look at it, and that then they will know uh, why they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, and will realize what they're doing, and will change. And they have to go through a, a development of kind of 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 starting to understand. You see the dawning of the realization that that isn't going to be the way this works. You know, that these, that the, the stories that we have, the experiences that they read about are particular to those people and that actually they have to try and figure it out themselves. Um, and it is about trying to piece together the story of their family, which is uh, how they begin to navigate how to support their person. Um, I think particularly for somebody who's had an eating disorder for a long time, or for a young person who's kind of coming out of their eating disorder uh, into adulthood it can be incredibly helpful for them to give themselves a story so that they understand what's happened to them and i would have done this you know work privately as well so i would have done this with people a couple of times you know let's 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 do the timeline let's figure it out let's give it a story because you want them to have a way a narrative a way of Saying this happened to me, and this is what happened, you know, this and then this and then this, because it can be really helpful for them to have something to hang it on, to tie it on in that way. But that raises another issue, which is the telling of one's story. And while that can raise public awareness, you know, in media, we're always getting media requests, you know, but do you have somebody, do you have a parent or somebody? Um, and while that's brilliant, because you listening to a person speak is far different, say, from listening to me speak about that person. But then there is I always feel slightly uncomfortable about it because that's always going to be there then. And they're always going to, you know, if they're Googled or whatever, that's that's what comes up. That's there. And I think that it's um, in, in recovering from an eating disorder. There will be a time where the person will feel well and will want to tell their story and might tell it. But then there will be another bit where they want to move away from their story and not have it attached to them in that way anymore or be identified in that way. And that can be, I think that's a bit problematic. And I think that that's where this whole discussion is about the use of narratives and how it can be helpful at different points. And it absolutely can. But it can also be challenging for people or can, you know, as Emily has said in the research, so interesting that the eating disorder mindset hones in on certain aspects and forgets all the maybe all the positive stuff and just hones in on, you know, how they did certain bits or whatever. So we have to be really careful about that. But I suppose I would hope that people who have an eating disorder get to a point where it's no longer part of their life, you know, where they move away from it. and um they, they they start a different chapter of their story
0: <laughs> to coin a phrase um that's really really well said I, That that idea of kind of your your proximity to your to your narrative is is so important and it can become a kind of an entrapment almost i was really struck by by um by something that that both you and and emily pointed out that there is this this kind of um the sense of a boundary space which it, within which these narratives can take place and you were talking about service providers and the duty to open up a safe space and that space of un- knowing, I thought was a really useful, um, just a really useful image. And and Emily, you were similarly talking about the kind of the, the seeking out of these very restrictive kinds of narrative and as 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 a as a, a real a, a real problem. So that idea of kind of op- narrative as opening boundaries rather than imposing boundaries, I think is a, a really key one and giving giving again that resonant space, giving, giving kind of equip, equipping patients and clinicians and children as, as they, as they become readers, as they become, as they kind of grow up to, 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 to find the language themselves to to speak to the, their own stories. But one thing that I'd like to ask Liz about as well is we've t- we've talked Liz you you came at this from as as a as a kind of a way of dealing with some of the emotional toll as a clinician of dealing with these um, dealing with these cases. And there's a balance again there between the clinician's experience of a patient's story and the patient's ownership of a patient's story, which seems to chime a lot, again, with this kind of idea of who owns a story and who gets to decide what we should know and what we should hear. So I wondered if you could just say a little bit about how you how you see the clinician as using the, 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 the patient's narrative or engaging with the patient's narrative in their own reflective practice as well. Yeah, that's a great question, it's a huge
3: question actually. So we all know when we go to the doctor with any kind of an illness, we have to be vulnerable. So I go to my GP about a problem. I have to be vulnerable. I just share my story. I have to tell them about what's happening. I have to allow them to examine me. So immediately uh, I am physically vulnerable. You know, if people have talked a little bit about embodiment and embodied feelings. And um, so immediately we're into that sort of physical sensation uh, boundaries if I if someone's going to examine me and do bloods then that's intrusive okay and now if I'm a teenager with a, an eating disorder and I'm in, in our hospital in the emergency department say because my CAMS team have sent me in because I'm very unwell not only do I have to do, be vulnerable in all of those ways I also now have to be weighed by someone who doesn't know me on a weighing scales that I'm not used to in the emergency department in a you know reasonably um, public space I mean it's a, it's a treatment room but it's still it's not you know it's not home it's not the clinic I'm used to and I think that's really hard for adolescents but actually it's hard for clinicians as well because clinicians don't want to cause distress they don't want to upset people they want to hear the story they want to take the time to hear the narrative um but if I'm the AE doctor and there's 20 kids in the waiting room you know I don't have as much time maybe as I would like and I still have to you know, do 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 the physical checks. Sometimes what's happening isn't ideal and that's difficult. Yeah. So some of this is about where you are on the pathway. Are you coming in into an emergency situation? It's different if you're in the CAMS clinic and you're getting to know somebody over a long period of time or if you're in the eating disorder specialist service where you're getting to know someone over a long period of time. Confidence and competence are going to be part of that. So if I'm a trainee and I've done lots of work in this area, I'm going to feel very confident about doing it. And hopefully, you know, that will be transmitted to the young person and their family. They'll know that or their carers, they'll 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 know that. But sometimes it's not that easy. And the other thing is, of course, clinicians are not robots. They have lived experience as well. They have family members who get ill. They have family members who have eating disorders. They have friends who've had eating disorders. You know, they have stuff going on in their own lives. So all of that is present in the doctor-patient interaction when you meet in the emergency room or, or in a clinic or wherever. And I think in medicine and in um, clinical practice generally, we've had a lot of of very, very significant difficulties around burnout um, or compassion fatigue. There are lots of different words for it. Um, And I think until relatively recently, this was very much located in the doctor. This was the problem with this particular doctor not being resilient enough. But I think the last few years in 2016 or 2017, The Lancet had an editorial showing you know burnout rates are three times higher in clinical practice than in other work environments so we have to start asking ourselves what are we doing wrong because these compassionate individuals generally who come into healthcare because they want to support and um, help people and they're interested in science like people come in for lots of reasons but generally they come in and they're compassionate and something is happening so one of the ways to think about that is thinking about how can we use narrative as a way of supporting reflective practice And thinking about the doctor-patient relationship, what am I bringing to this as the doctor myself? What is the patient bringing to it? What is the parent or the carer bringing to it? All of those things. So we use two different kinds of narrative-based interventions here. One is called Schwartz Rounds and one is called Bailant Groups. So um, I'm involved in both of those. And the Bailant Groups, particularly for trainees, I think are a space where they can talk about the emotional impact of the work and reflect on a particular story that has stayed with them. And I'd certainly say, you, you know, stories where the presenting problem or the case that the trainee is talking about involves a young person with an eating difficulty or where a Schwartz round, you know, involves uh, a team perhaps struggling to support somebody with an eating challenge. Those are cases that come up often because clinicians do struggle with these, with these cases. I think it's important that we recognize that, that, you know, that the clinicians aren't robots and they don't always get it right. Uh, and that we need to think support teaching training and reflection are all a part of that now body wise have been absolutely fantastic on that front I think and certainly over the years I I think this has come a long, long way Harriet from where things were you know 10 or 15 years ago and I think there's good recognition of this in the model of care for Ireland as well I think
0: that's that's a really, really useful response, Liz. Thank you. I'm conscious of time, so um, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll wrap up now. But it, it, one of the things that, that really strikes me as a common theme throughout all of your really very different perspectives is the, the need to think about, about narrative as a way of scaffolding a space of exploration, be that in a clinical encounter, both for the the patient and the doctor, uh, or that, or whatever whatever clinical practitioner is involved, and also in further than in the journey of recovery, either working with with service providers like Bodywise or moving on it kind of individually to think through and to be aware of. What can, what can direct your attention in various ways, um, and even sort of much more, um, much more broadly, much more holistically, developing the self as a critical reader, as a critical thinker. So much more nuanced than we're accustomed to think about. And it's not just a case of, you know, give the doctors a story about somebody with an eating disorder, give the patient story of recovery and everybody's gonna go home happy. Um, but thinking in a much more nuanced way about how narrative works, not just what it can, what it can do or the stories it can tell, but how it operates in those contexts, I think is, is really important. And of course, all of that further compounded and complicated when we're talking about young readers, young patients um, and, and adolescents. So all kinds of questions of dignity and control and power, all of which are, I think are really, really central to the, to the Mind Reading Project. So it remains just for me to thank our panelists for today. Um, Harriet Parsons, Elizabeth Barrett, Emily Trishanko, and Aoife Murray, thank you so much for your really, really rich contributions. Um, I really, We really appreciate it. And we found
2: bringing together experts from, from different backgrounds so, so enriching and useful. So just thank you so much, all of you.